A reading from the Gospel according to Matthew. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord, descending from heaven, came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guards shook and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been raised, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has been raised from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. This is my message for you. So they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them and said greetings. And they came to him, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. The word of God for the people of God. Good morning again. Following the sermon this morning, you're going to hear our wonderful Knox Choir sing the Alleluia Chorus. Some of you may know that according to tradition, uh, one begun by King George II, people stand during the Alleluia Chorus and you are invited at that time if you are led by body or spirit to rise as we hear the Hallelujah Chorus. As we prepare to go to God's Word, let us join together in prayer. Startle us, O God, with the news of your grace and love, the incredible witness we hear in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And on this glorious morning, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Just in case you weren't surprised by it, I'm going to recount the story you heard read once more. This time I'm going to write, read it to you from a translation. I've been working on a new one. I call it the Revised Standard Adam Franchek version. <laughs> once upon a time, there were two women, Mary Magdalene and another woman, who arose at dawn on the first day of the week. They went to anoint the body of their teacher who had died. As they were approaching the tomb, an angel appeared from heaven causing a great earthquake. Two soldiers stationed to guard the tomb were so frightened they fell to the ground and lay there as if they were dead. The angel then rolled back the gigantic stone that had sealed the tomb and sat upon it beside the open door. When the women arrived, the angel greeted them with kindness, telling them not to be afraid, and shared the wonderful, though shocking, news that their friend Jesus had been raised from the dead and that he was on the way to Galilee and would see them there. 
As the women departed, still a little afraid, but with great joy, their resurrected friend Jesus appeared to them himself and said, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. We are so accustomed to hearing this story on Easter morning that even when one frames it with the words of a fairy tale once upon a time, highlighting how magical it is, we are still mostly unsurprised. There are four accounts of the resurrection of Jesus, one in each of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We share them in rotation from one Easter to the next. Matthew is the one I have always found hardest to preach because of its unabashed portrayal of the miracles taking place. An angel, an earthquake, two soldiers, catatonic, an appearance of the risen Christ, and of course, the resurrection itself, God's defeat of death. All told with no sense of embarrassment, and we are invited to believe it. Not all four of the accounts are like this one. John's account is rather miraculous, it is true, but John focuses so much on Mary's experience and the experience of the two disciples running to the tomb. It's easy for a preacher to focus on that. Luke's story is also miraculous, but he tells the story with a focus on the ways that Easter fulfills the promises Jesus had been making all along. So in a way, Luke is appealing to our reason. Mark is by far the favorite of skeptical preachers. Mark includes no story of the risen Jesus himself. Mark ends his gospel with a mysterious empty tomb. It is so unmiraculous that a friend of mine who is also a minister once preached an Easter sermon on Mark and titled it Easter Without Jesus. I will admit to you that I have my doubts about the miraculous character of some biblical events. I will go a step further and say that I am sometimes tempted not to claim too much about these Easter stories on Easter Sunday because I don't want to make you uncomfortable. But this year, something has changed for me. Maybe I'm a little too surrounded by doubt and dismay in so much of life. And I'm really in need of some good news. But this year I've been wondering, I've really been thinking about what we miss if we don't allow ourselves to be drawn into the mysteries of this story. So this morning, I'm going to lean into the earthquake and the angel and the massive stone rolled away, each of which are pretty easy to believe if you first lean into the resurrection, the claim that Jesus got up from the dead. 
Now that I've upset all of the skeptics and rationalists in the room, let's take a step back and look at this resurrection story through a wider lens, and you might find that you are more attracted to miracles than you think. We all grew up with miracles, of course, often in the form of fairy tales. Alice in Wonderland, The Wizard of Oz, The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe. These are the tales that shaped how many of us grew up seeing the world, and some of them are explicitly Christian. And these are not just naive tales about fantasy. They teach us about the world's deep struggle between good and evil. And they teach us to live in that world as people of hope. J.R.R. Tolkien once said of his stories that they are powerful precisely because they do not deny the existence of sorrow and failure. The possibility of these, he wrote, is, ne is necessary to the joy of deliverance. What Tolkien's stories do deny, he said, in the face of much evidence, is universal final defeat. In these great stories of his, death and evil do not have the last word. And that, Tolkien said, gives a fleeting glimpse of joy. And therein lies the story's power. Its allure is that it gives us the hope we so desperately need. In addition to teaching us about good and evil, fairy tales are also powerful precisely because they take place so close to home. Alice gets to Wonderland through a mirror on the living room wall. Dorothy gets to Oz simply by staying at home at the farmhouse. And Narnia is just through a few steps in the wardrobe. So people like you and me get to wonder if hope might be nearer to us than we think, and if there might be more good than we knew existed right under our roofs or in our own backyard. Now, of course, you will say to me, fine, those are nice stories. But in my maturity, I have outgrown them. But I would say to you, what then of the grown-up expressions of hope and joy that we find all around us? What of Garth Brooks singing, We Shall Be Free, or when Bruce Springsteen sings about a land of hope and dreams? What of when Aretha Franklin sings about her aspiration for respect, or when Dr. King inspires change by declaring, I have a dream? What about when the choir sings the Alleluia Chorus and the King stands up? And what about the countless Emmy Awards for Ted Lasso? <laughs> whose laughable buffoonery is only surpassed by his boundless kindness and his totally unrealistic optimism. And America, America, cannot stop watching. 
joy. We crave hope. We need these teachers and prophets and storytellers who preach it to us because life in the world without hope is unbearable. We need hope so much. We need hope because the world is hard. Ukraine, mental illness, gun violence, anxiety, tornadoes, financial trouble, cancer. There are lots of reasons to be hard-hearted and hopeless and skeptical. We need joy and hope. And for Christians, Easter is where hope begins. Now, sure, there are reasons to be skeptical about the Easter story, too. And believe me, I am familiar with them. Every time I say the word resurrection in church, I know I'll be hearing from a few of you Knox people who want to know if I've read Marcus Borg or John Dominic Crossan, who are curious if I've heard their explanation that the tomb was empty because Jesus' body was devoured by wild dogs. Yes, friends, I've read the book. In fact, I love reasonable, thoughtful scholarship that is full of academic doubt. In my geeky pastor's kind of way, I enjoy every new quirk and twist of discovery that helps us think about who this man Jesus really was. Those who have devoted their lives to searching for him are giants of the faith, certainly more than me. The point I'm making is a bit different, though. It's not that I don't appreciate skepticism, it's just that I get quite enough of it every place else in life. And when I come to church, I find myself wanting something more, more hopeful, more inspiring, more mysterious than what I get in an academic journal or on cable news. I've been down the road of deconstructing all of the mysteries, and these days I'm more interested in being drawn into one. I want to build my life around a story that gives me joy. I have a hunch I'm not alone in that. In fact, I know I'm in good company. I read a literary commentator recently who recounted that Shakespeare, certainly no stranger to tragedy, changed in his later years. He spent much of his life writing the likes of Lear and Macbeth, dwelling in storylines that end in misery and captivating audiences along the way. But something led him late in life to turn to stories like Cymbeline and The Tempest, which end not in tragedy, but with more mystery and hope. This seemed to be the destination of Shakespeare's artistic journey. Much like Rembrandt, who in his later self-portraits finally cracks a smile. I'm sure no Shakespeare or Rembrandt 
but I can try to learn something from them. And I do have a conviction about what I write and say in church, that if what you hear in church is no better than what you're hearing anywhere else, you'll stop showing up. And that's what I would do. But I come because here there is this promise of something more. Many of us want something more. Most of us are inspired, the fact is, by someone we know who brings to their life more optimism and joy than the average person and more optimism and joy than the world really seems to deserve. And we love them for it. And that's really the point I'm making about Easter. When I read Matthew's account of Easter, I get a chance to put my skepticisms aside and live the day before me through the lens of hope. And that's what Jesus means at the end of the story when he invites the disciples to meet him in Galilee. You see, Galilee for them was not a miraculous place. Galilee was Matthew's literary device for the place where regular life happened where the disciples would encounter all kinds of reasons to be cruel and suspicious and ungenerous. And Galilee was the place where Jesus met them first and challenged them to live their lives with openness and love. Galilee is where Jesus wants them to receive the good news of resurrection. And the same is true for you and for me. It's in the midst of the places in life that most tempt us to skepticism that Jesus invites us to live a life of hope. So on this Easter day, and in these days or any days when so much may threaten to undo us, I invite you this morning to consider how shocking and inspiring the story of Easter might be if only you choose to let it be inspiring. The angel and the earthquake. The stone rolled away and the tomb found empty and a Savior who wants to meet us out there in life and tempt us toward a life of hope. That's the promise of Easter. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen.